Hey, LifeBridge, we are doing a new series of conversations. We are talking about progressivism and the left and problems we see there. Um, we don't talk about this stuff very often, and it's a common critique that we get that people feel like, you know, you're criticizing uh, Christians, you're criticizing the church, you're criticizing conservatism. And criticizing isn't really the right word. That's not our goal. But we do primarily think that we're responsible as pastors to call out blind spots, call out idols in our own um, in our own camp, so to speak. And so that's our primary focus. That's our primary objective when we talk about this sort of stuff. So we don't talk about the left a ton because we live in Burlington, Wisconsin, and and pastor a very conservative um, sort of church in a very conservative town. That doesn't mean we have no problems with. Uh, with liberal ideals, progressive ideals. And so because people are curious and want to know, we are going to talk about some of the issues we have today. Um, but we, we also want to say and keep in mind that when it comes to what really threatens the church, um, we don't necessarily think these are the things that are the primary threat to our church. We, As we've said before, we believe that the call is coming from inside the house. We think that the church and those who are already in it are, are capable of doing the most damage and historically do do the most damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to keep that out there because we don't want to present as, as, as something else, but we do have a lot of problems with progressivism and we're happy to talk about it. None of it's a secret. Um, and so we're going to talk about it in, and we're going to have three conversations, one on culture, one on politics and one on, um, the church and progressive church. And today we're going to talk about culture. And then even, even just as a kind of a primer, as we get started, when we talk about the left and progressivism, what, however you want to phrase it. it, it's not really one monolithic thing. Um, you know, I, I think we, uh, we sort of talked a little bit before we started about how it, how it breaks down a little differently. And why don't, you, why don't you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think the thing to keep in mind is that everything uh, kind of flows downstream from culture, uh, politics, and the church in a lot of ways. And I think a good, a good representation of this is for political figures that we're all familiar with. These, these representative figures, I think it's important to keep in mind, again, that they're not, like, they didn't start these movements. Like, these were movements in the culture that they have been, they have taken advantage of, and that's why they're popular. So, somebody like Donald Trump, he's like the, the populist movement on the right. Um, Mitt Romney represents another uh, segment of the, of the culture and is more of the, like, establishment Republican type. And then there's, like, uh, Joe Biden, more of, like, the establishment uh uh, liberal or Democrat type, and then you've got Bernie Sanders, who's who's more of the populist, um, left-leaning, progressive uh, type that represents those movements. So I think I think framing the cultural conversations with these four political figures that we're all familiar with, I think is helpful at least at the outset. And and what we're going to talk about today and over the next three sessions, we want to talk about the ideas that are popular within those cultural movements, primarily revolving around um, the, the Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders um, supporters. The first thing we want to talk about is critical theory. Critical theory has been a, kind of a hot topic of uh, in the last year, you know, connected to the, I think it, it came into a lot of people's awareness around the Black Lives Matter movement, got kind of linked to critical race theory. That's been a huge conversation both in culture and in the church. And so we're going to talk about critical theory a little bit because it's certainly not something that we embrace um, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So, John, why don't you talk about it a little bit? John and I are not experts on this, just to be clear. I guess I won't speak for you. Maybe you. No, I, would, I am an expert on it. Okay. No, I'm not, not at all. <laughs> You've been working on your degree. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's kind of this 
difficult to pin down idea, but the basic structure of it is that we focus a lot on power structures and those who are in power who as defined by their uh, gender, uh, their race, their sexuality. Um, those power structures can become like the bad guy or just the boogeyman and are to blame for all of the ills and the problems that we see in our culture now. Um, so critical race theory just looks at it through the lens of race. And since um, uh, white men have been in power for since the beginning of our country, then uh, they are to blame for all of the problems that we see in our culture now. It takes a few different forms, but it's, it's incomplete. It can be a helpful tool, I think. I don't want to just dismiss the entire thing. It, it is true that white men have been in power in American culture since the beginning, and that does create some blind spots and some problems, right? Um, so it can be helpful in some respects, but it does fail to recognize the innate problem of our sinful nature, that whoever is in power is going to make sinful decisions, and there is going to be, um, there is going to be problems. The whole theory in general feels a little bit like the dog chasing the bus. When it catches it, it doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, my question is always like, what what happens when our social structure of America changes in the next you know, 30, 40, 50 years? And what happens when we shift those power dynamics and those problems still exist? There, there's going to be new problems that come in. There's going to be new abuses of power. Um, so it, it, it just seems, it feels a little bit incomplete in that sense. Yeah, and it, it's drawing a different framework for who's right and who's wrong. So uh, our biblical framework is like the Bible defines what sin is, and when we sin, we are wrong. Um, there is a place for, I mean, the Bible does talk about power, about power dynamics. How, I mean, I, I just mentioned in a sermon the other week how David committed a sin that I could never commit because he had power that I would never have, right? Um, so it's we shouldn't completely take power out of how we think about things, certainly around race, but around power structures in general. I don't think we should just ignore that stuff. We shouldn't rule out people's experiences. Certainly people who have had uh, a harder go than us, people who, who have less than us, we shouldn't judge your experience and say, why didn't you do what I did? There is a place for empathy and understanding and grace around those things. But at the same time, there is a place for personal culpability and responsibility for the decisions that we make. Even if someone has a harder life than me, that doesn't mean that they're incapable of sinning. There's still such a thing we believe as sin and personal sin and people acting in a way that is against the will of God. And so it doesn't it doesn't break down along those same um, those same lines all the time. So, you know, if you want to look at power and, and deconstructing that stuff, that there is some use to that. There's not a lot of answers there though. There's not a lot of hope there. And there are some places that it, it does really delineate from, from what the Bible calls sin, what the Bible calls being outside of God's will. Um, and that's possible to do regardless of how much power you have, what class you're a part of, how much money you have, all of those things. We all have that sin nature. And it, it does sort of feel like an attempt to draw lines where all the blame goes somewhere and basically saying these are the people with sin nature. And the reason they have the sin nature is because they have the power. And uh, of course, again, this is just a really quick shot at this, but what we see there, we don't see as, as totally in step with the gospel, with biblical truth. Um, we also don't see it as this massive threat to the church, as this thing that we need to come out and denounce. We do believe that some forms of injustice uh, around race exist, and it has been at times built into systems and laws, and, and, and the effects of that still exist today. 
but we stop we stop well short of saying this is something that we need to teach at church. Maybe it's a little useful, but it's not something that we're like we got to do more with this. N- nothing like that. And again, doesn't provide a lot of answers. Just deconstructs. Just points out problems. Um, and then it's like like you said, once the dog catches the bus, which the dog will catch the bus in our country, and the power dynamic will shift. What happens then, and how does critical theory apply to a situation like that? Another area is uh, sexual ethics. This one is um, this one's pretty much plain as day. We've talked about it an, any number of times. And kind of the joke I make is like, if you come into our church, we're a little younger, you know, we've got exposed brick. <laughs> <laughs> but we are kind of old school family values when it comes to sexual ethics. Um, that's a little bit culturally difficult sometimes. It, 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 it can be uncomfortable. Um, but it's pretty simple. We believe in God's ideal being a man and a woman um, being created, having specific facets to their identity that are uniquely male and uniquely female, marrying and having sex and having kids within that marriage covenant. And we believe that's good. We believe it's from God. We know the church hasn't always nailed this stuff. We know that there's some issues with purity culture, of course. We know that um, the church's treatment of, of gay people um, some of the deconversion therapy, some of that stuff, certainly not good either. Um, we agree with that. The same thing around, uh, you know, around abortion. We are we are totally a hundred percent against abortion. I agree that the church doesn't always do a great job in taking care of um, moms who are in crisis. That's all true. At the end of the day, we still believe that abortion is wrong, and certainly in the culture, progressivism has, has pushed us into a very different place. In the culture, starting with the sexual revolution, um, not starting with that, but including the sexual revolution, and uh, and that's just not us. That's just not uh, what what we believe in. And I think it's important for us to talk about this in the culture conversation that we're having here because I think these these things tend to get pegged as political issues, but I think they're cultural issues first. Um, and I think the like, we need to have these conversations and we need to be driving our, our ideas and our values here in the culture first and not just focusing on the political issues. That's where we see the, like, that's where we see the cultural conversation most vividly displayed and where it's going. Uh, again, as we've said all along, politics flows downstream from culture. So I think the cultural conversation here is more important when it comes to things like sexual ethics on uh, things like abortion, things like, uh, uh, sexual revolution, like John mentioned before, um, gender identity, same-sex relationships, that kind of stuff. The, the cultural conversation is, I think, where the primary uh, conversation should be had here, especially for the church. I think a lot of the, the church's teachings on masculinity and femininity have been overly simplistic and one-sided. So what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a female? Um we've elevated the masculine side of like just going out and like cutting down trees and shooting guns. Power and lifters at men's conferences. Exactly. Stuff right. like that, that um, has left many with the impression that if you don't like those things, then you are not manly according to right. the Bible. And that's not true at all. We need to broaden the conversation around what it means to be a, a man and what it means to be a woman. Yeah. And our conversation with Preston Sprinkle um, and the tough topics conversation we had with him, he sort of talked about how, if the church is really dogmatic and black and white and saying this is this is what a man should be like, this is what a woman should be like, the more we do that, the more we're actually going to push people outside of the biblical ethic rather than um, rather than maintaining the biblical ethic but 
being a little bit broader and honestly just more connected to reality mm -hmm. about about how those things can play out. Yeah, and you mentioned Preston Sprinkle. I'd encourage you to check out his his website and his uh, organization, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. He's really good about um, speaking what we believe to be the truth from uh, a traditional biblical sexual ethic, but also in love and hearing people's stories and understanding where they're coming from, understanding the confusion that people have in the culture today around sexuality and and still loving them, but also still holding to the truth of Scripture. I would say this is probably our single, if you want to talk about cultural irrelevance yeah. <laughs> as a church, this is probably the number one thing that is just so out of step with culture. Mm -hmm. And and to the point where I would say the majority of people in our church don't even really believe this. Mm -hmm. That's that's how crazy and countercultural it is to actually think that you should wait until you're married to have sex. Almost nobody does that in the church or outside of it. So um, we know that. <laughs> We're not really like trying to find a way to be edgy about this stuff or be, be relevant with it. We don't want to have a shaming culture around it. We don't want to have a culture that lacks grace, that lacks gentleness. Um, we still believe these things. And so um, that's obviously one, one way that we're, we're definitely out of step with culture as a whole, right. but certainly progressive culture. So the other thing we want to talk about was uh, cancel culture. Cancel culture is another one that's uh, in the news lately and a lot of people are talking about. And uh, one that we, we we do see some problems with, that it's become this like populist movement to be able to just cancel somebody at any moment because of uh, because of what they said. Like Twitter, social media, this is where it's, it's kind of, it has a lot of power. <laughs> There's a lot of power in starting a hashtag to get somebody canceled. And again, it kind of just goes back to the idea that uh, truth oftentimes doesn't matter. It's it what actually happened sometimes doesn't matter. Like we just, we don't even wait to, to hear the information, to hear the facts come out, to have a thorough investigation done. It's just, you know, mob, mob rule kind of idea. They can just take whatever they want, whatever ideas are not popular in the culture and they they can never see the light of day. Yeah, I think the for me the big issue with with cancel culture comes sometimes comes down to just a there's just no grace in it whatsoever. There's no um, there's no ability to say like, hey, this person made a mistake. There is sort of this. Um, there's just a, there's, it's like a really prideful lens of just like we have it all figured out right now in this moment. Everyone else mm -hmm. for all of all of time is problematic. You know, when you hear about people getting fired for tweets that they they tweeted when they were 17 years old, you know, um, and losing their job over that. If you want to run for president and you get vetted and they find something from when you're a teenager that's going to be a big problem, okay. You don't have to be, you don't, not everyone gets to be president, you know, but just any job, you know, there, there's a point when that some of that stuff is, is going to be an issue if we keep doing things this way because people make mistakes. I think mm -hmm. the teenage years is a good time for people to make those kind of mistakes and others right. to tell them like, hey, right. it doesn't work that way. Don't do that. Yep. Here's what's going to happen in the world if you do that. And then it's like, okay, well, I won't do that anymore. Yep. I think that's a, good, that's a good lesson to learn in your teenage years. This is basically saying you're not allowed to learn that lesson in your teenage years. You need to never need it because you need yep. to be a pure thinker or, or something. Right, because now in your teenage years, everything's public and it doesn't go away. But in terms of a biblical worldview, it just it really lacks any ability to forgive. Right. There's this, um, there's this pharisaical thing that's happening where it's basically, this is the pure way to think 
And if you if you show us that at any point you didn't think that way, we're going to replace you with someone else who's who's less problematic. It's also worth pointing out. I think something that's happening in in more conservative places right now is some things are getting called cancel culture that just I don't think are. You know, some things are just consequences. Consequences for actions is actually a very conservative thing. It's like mm-hmm. personal responsibility. I made a mistake. I get a consequence. You know, uh, and sometimes now. What would be really closer to just consequences is getting called cancel culture. And it's like, mm-hmm. right. no, that's consequences are okay. Right. You know, another, I think another way that the cancel culture thing plays out is things like, you know, the Washington monument, George Washington, uh, owned slaves. Right. And so at some point, are we going to get to the point where it's like, okay, we can't have a Washington monument anymore. And I think a lot of what cancel culture comes down to is an inability to, um, appreciate something that someone did during a very different time, um, and then they they were wrong about some other things. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, having some having some grace and saying, if I was there in that time, um, I might have been wrong about that too. Um, my kids will say that I'm wrong now about something. I assume, right? There's there's just a level of pride to that sort of that sort of um, treatment of those things. So. I don't feel super strongly like, oh, I hate cancel culture. I'm not buying up Dr. Seuss books right now, right? But I don't know the productive end of this of this conversation. I don't know where it's going, you know? Yeah, yeah I think a lot of it comes from a, just a lack of understanding uh, and ability to nuance that we're all kind of a combination of good and bad, of right, good and evil, uh, right and wrong. And to deal with the um, the complex nature of the human person who... Uh, all we all have, we all have our wrong ideas. We all have our blind spots, and when we look historically, especially, we see those front and center. Um, and even from a Christian perspective, we have to be able to have grace for people who make mistakes. Like, man, David would have been canceled for sure, right? right. After what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba, that was horrendous stuff. Peter would have been canceled and would have never seen the light of day as the as the uh, leader of the early church, right? Because he denied Jesus three times, but Jesus showed him a lot of grace. You know, there's there's just countless examples of that. Whereas Christians, like there, there is something to be said for you know somebody has a serious moral failing as a leader. Yeah. Like maybe maybe don't maybe don't buy their stuff. Maybe don't you know right. promote their things. Like there's there is something to be said for that uh, for sure. Um, but but we can take it really far and not show people grace or think that just because somebody had this one blind spot or this moral failing that they therefore don't have anything good to say or they never had anything good to say that was true and good and, and right. It comes back to sin nature, right? The ultimate problem with, with ousting all the people who are problematic is that we're all problematic. Exactly. You know, if that, like if that's the language you want to use, if that's how you want to think about it, we are all sinful. We all have issues and problems and... um and we lose sight of that so quickly. And it and it it creates this pride and this judgmental, you know, of just looking at look at what that person did. I think one of the key foundational problems with the cancel culture idea is our inability to disagree over certain opinions in our culture and to hear differences of opinions and to discuss these opinions in a civil way. So when we hear a difference of opinion, we feel the need to just eliminate the voice. <laughs> just like if we just don't have to hear that anymore, then we'll create this kind of safe space where we don't ever hear anything that challenges our perspective. 
And I think there's plenty of blame to go around on both sides of the aisle for this of how instead of just discussing ideas and, and getting at uh, truth and what is a better solution, we tend to demonize and tend to slander other people instead of just having good civil conversations. So um, I think that's at the heart of cancel culture problems is the failure to have civil conversations around ideas and debate and discuss. And in the church, we do this all the time. We cancel people all the time too in the evangelical church. Right. And uh, yeah, so just be aware of that. Have a little bit of grace when when the culture is doing the same. There's this, there seems to be this desire to like disassociate with certain people. It's like image management. I think one of the more, if you go to a church like ours, you have to get over that. Broken people walk into a church every day. They are coming in with a set of sins, a set of problems in their thinking. And I, we, you know, it's one of the things that as a pastor, you just have to get used to. I cannot worry about that person's ideas being associated with our church. I want them here. I want to be a part of making them not think that way anymore. We want to be a place that helps sinners find the way of Jesus. And we can't do that if we are insisting on disassociating from people who think X, Y, or Z. I often say that progressive churches aren't aren't that different from conservative churches. They just hate different sins and love different sinners. That's really kind of what it comes down to a lot of the time. And one of the things we cannot do is insist on that sort of purity and say, everybody who thinks this way, get out and don't come back. And so if there's someone in our church who has some racist ideas, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna show them the door. I'm just not. That's not how we do it. We don't disassociate from people. Um, barring the maybe the occasional situation where people are unsafe. But generally speaking, that's not what the role of the church is. That's not what Jesus did, and that's not what we're going to do. And in that way, it's so it's so different from what the world is doing around cancel culture right now, which is basically like, we need to disassociate from this person. That's not what the church does, and it's not what we're going to do. The life of Jesus offers us some really good, some really good advice on how to handle working with imperfect people and navigating life with imperfect people and showing people grace, showing people forgiveness, um, knowing that we need forgiveness ourselves. There's, there's a lot there. Um, and cancel culture uh, just misses a lot of that. Yeah. Like we said, like, like we said at the top of the episode, I'm going to say it again. Our point here is not that we see these things as a major threat to the church. I, we don't think that cancel culture is a major threat to the church. Um, but we do see it as an issue and one in, in the culture primarily driven by the left. And that's the point of these episodes. Um, if you are listening to this and you, you are on maybe on the more progressive side of things, uh, we'd love to chat with you about this stuff. We're happy to talk through it with you and, and, and go into more details on why we believe what we believe. If you're, if you're more conservative, we do want these episodes to help you understand where we're at with these things. In conservative churches, we are used to only hearing why our side is good and the other side is bad. And we, and we don't do that at our church. As we've been saying, we believe that the biggest threat to the church is inside the church. The call is coming from inside the house. So we will keep talking about the things that, primarily we will be talking about the things that we believe are hang-ups, idols, and blind spots in our church, in our own camp. We wanted to take a couple episodes to talk about the quote-unquote other side and the issues we see there too. With that, we will we will have a couple more of these conversations. We'll be back soon with another one. Uh, if you have questions, please reach out. Thanks for listening.